You're listening to ReachMD. The following episode was produced in collaboration with the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation and the American Gastroenterological Association. Here's your host, Dr. Matt Bernholtz. Coming to you from the third annual Crohn's and Colitis Congress in Austin, Texas, this is ReachMD. I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz. With me today is Dr. Tiffany Taft, Director of Psychogastroenterology Research in the Division of Gastroenterology and Hepatology at Northwestern University to discuss key takeaways from a recent session titled IBD Patient Quality of Life, Pain, Fatigue, and Nutrition. Dr. Taft, welcome to you. Thank you for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. I'm thrilled to be at the Congress this year and just really having this nice session dedicated to those important topics, especially to IBD patients. Absolutely. Um, Before we even get started, I have to ask, your credential of being a director of psychogastroenterology research is going to be novel to many of our audience. It's a really unique combination of fields, which is probably, from your perspective, long overdue. Um, But I'd love to, to know more about the work that you do in that role. Sure. So um, Dr. Laurie Kiefer and I started the first integrated behavioral medicine or psychology practice in gastroenterology at Northwestern about 15 years ago. So this has been a long process. And we are um, clinical psychologists by training. So we all have doctorates in, in clinical psychology or master's level in social work. And then we go on to subspecialize in uh, something called health psychology. So it's kind of like medicine, right? You have internal medicine, and then you you go into the more granular specialties. And we, um, uh, health psychologists, deal with chronic medical illness. And then within that is psychogastroenterology, where we dedicate our research and our clinical work to patients with chronic digestive disease like IBD. And so that's what I do. I do research on those topics at Northwestern. Fascinating. And you've really carved a unique niche within the university, especially as you're devoting a lot of your time and energy to IBD research. Yeah, we we focus on all digestive diseases in psychogastroenterology, but um, IBD has a, a special place in Dr. Kiefer's heart and mine in terms of you know, just the the mental health aspects and the impacts of IBD on these patients. So we really want to um, get that message out. And we're thrilled that the Congress has such a dedicated uh, lineup of people looking into these issues. Well, that's a perfect segue. Why don't we jump right into the Congress then? Um, Because I'd love to hear about how the session uh, specifically to quality of life, looking at pain, fatigue, and nutrition very ambitious subject, taking on many critical factors uh, for quality of life. What stood out to you uh, regarding this session? It was a lot of really great information, and it is sometimes our sessions kind of get crammed together because there's just so much information to get out, right? And so we wanted to put together topics that are often of concern and are difficult to deal with. So like fatigue, for example, is one of the most difficult Uh, secondary effects of IBD, if you will, to treat. So things that should fix it, like maybe rectifying nutritional deficiencies or getting the disease under control, do not equal to fatigue being resolved. And patients report fatigue being their number one concern beyond bowel symptoms. So it's a big problem. And so the session really highlighted how do we try to help patients with fatigue because it's so multidimensional. You know, there's so many things that can cause someone to be tired. And it's more than being tired. It's fatigue, and you know, in your bones where you just can't function. 
And so that presentation really got into, you know, the importance of movement and, and physical activity, but also balancing um, not, you know, burning all your gas in your tank and then trying to recover. So patients often struggle with, I feel good today, so I'm going to go out and do all the things that I haven't been able to do, and then they do too much, and they overexert, and then the fatigue comes back, you know, and they get in this vicious cycle. So the talk really got into that and, like, how we as clinicians can try and help guide patients to break that vicious cycle. As a psychologist where you're interacting with these patients every day, how do you help get them through this vicious cycle that you're referring to when it comes to fatigue? So from your vantage point as a, as a psychologist, a clinical psychologist, how do you address that with patients, both adolescent and adult patients? It's tricky, so it'll be different. Um, adolescents have their own developmental place, and sometimes um, people diagnosed with illness in childhood or adolescent years developmentally have uh, different courses than we would put in our textbooks. So we have to meet the patient where they are developmentally. So with adolescents, we're going to be doing a lot of um, working with the family, you know, the parents or the caregivers that are present to get them to help us. So we leverage the family as much as we can um, to get them to the adolescents who already don't sleep. You know, they're up on their phones. That's our, it's a problem outside of IBD. So we try to get them to get good sleep habits. So um, and then in adults, we uh, work with them on a variety of things that might contribute to their fatigue. So physical activity, if they're not moving, getting them moving, but in a way that won't maybe overexert them too quickly. People get excited and they want to do things um, or encouraging them if they don't think they can. So small, achievable goals is the heart of behavior change. Um, and then we also look at um, nutrition. So we, we do help people with, if they're having trouble, we'll refer them to dietitians or, or other people with that expertise. Um, we look at their sleep habits or something we call sleep hygiene that, you know, if they've got poor sleep, that will obviously contribute to their fatigue. There's something called cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia. Mm -hmm. So cognitive behavioral therapy is a broad treatment approach used outside of um, psychogastroenterology. It's for anxiety and depression. It's been around since the 1960s. So we apply that to insomnia. And there's like a, a protocol that we follow to help people not have bad sleep habits. Um, and then, you know, we just kind of bring all of it as we can together from a behavioral perspective, like what might people be doing that they think is helping them adjust and, and do well that actually might be hindering them. And we try to show them like, hey, why don't we try it this way? And through a series of um, almost behavioral experiments, have people go out and try it and find what works best for them. Why don't we shift then to another huge factor affecting quality of life, that being pain. Obviously, there are many sessions and entire career tracks that are uh, devoted to that one subject alone for pain management. In IBD, uh, it's particularly difficult in the sense that um, you will have patients reporting of pain, whether they are in active flares or not, even when they're in remission, uh, there is pain. How do you, as a, as a clinical psychologist, work with these patients around processing and managing their pain alongside the clinicians who are trying to help manage it for them? Yeah, so pain is a tricky topic these days, especially with the opioid crisis and the attention to those medications. We hear stories of under-prescribing now or patients being um, taken off of those medications maybe prematurely. So that's a whole other topic. 
But in terms of what we can do in, in psychology is there are pain psychologists. And so there's a whole body of literature on pain that we draw from. And we can uh, come at pain from two different ways. We can do exercises to reduce the nervous system arousal or autonomic nervous system arousal, which can amplify pain. So if you feel more stressed, more amped up in your body, your pain is going to be amplified. So we try and go through the nervous system through things like diaphragmatic breathing, things that are actually quite simple on paper can be quite powerful in terms of their effects on pain. It's not going to cure it. It's not going to get rid of it, but it might bring it down a couple pegs that it feels more manageable. So we'll teach patients basic relaxation strategies. Um, and we also use something uh, called gut-directed hypnotherapy, which is hypnosis, but not in the context of like movies or <laughs> stage hypnosis, but it is an effective treatment for pain, abdominal pain. And so we can use that with patients, which patients really like hypnosis, even if it isn't that effective. Uh, it does work about 60 or 70% of the time on pain symptoms, but um, not everybody will get benefits. So we do that. And then we come at it from a cognitive approach. So how do people think about their pain? How much attention are they paying to the pain? And can we get them to engage in other activities, meaningful activities that divert that attention. So doing in spite of pain versus the, the sometimes the draw to withdraw and not move and not do anything because that feels safer. So some of those safety behaviors that might not really be mm -hmm. doing them much good. We encourage people to get outside of that comfort zone that has become problematic. In the area of diet and exercise counseling, um, there are now many technologies, many apps that uh, people are being referred to to help them better manage their own nutrition habits. But before one just sends them off to X or Y um, app that will tell them, hey, these are your macros, this is what you need to focus on. Oh, you have IBD, it'll plug in some algorithm. What are some counseling tips that you provide for, for these patients to really help them get ahead of their own uh, disease process, their disease course, maybe even be able to mitigate some of the flares through nutritional uh, education? Yeah, so we are, are very fortunate at Northwestern um, to have talented dietitians that really understand IBD. And I, I, I wish I could clone them and put them all over the place so that everybody had access to qualified you know, registered dietitians that are, are knowledgeable of IBD and we know that that's not, that's kind of a pie-in-the-sky thing. So we do try to guide people to the best resources and are educated enough that we can help people read through some of the stuff online that maybe isn't as, you know, helpful, some of the, the quick-fix cures. Um, for me, I see diet as, as critical. Patients are very interested in diet, and I think... With the microbiome research coming out that's really advancing diet as a topic in IBD, I can remember not that long ago when IBD researchers were saying diet wasn't really that important, and now there's been like a big change, which is great. Hmm. One of the things I, I want to highlight for clinicians is when I hear an IBD patient is either being prescribed a diet or is just considering it on their own is to be mindful of that patient's resources and pre, um, 
predisposition to certain things. Patients that are very anxious um, may not be well-suited for a dietary approach that requires a lot of elimination of food. So some of these diets are very exclusionary, um, and they're supposed to, like, have a period of exclusion and reintroduction, you know, depending on the diet. And I see patients that become food-phobic and are afraid to eat and will not reintroduce foods. And, you know, we see really kind of maladaptive um, attitudes towards food that result from unmonitored diet Mm -hmm. interventions, you know. So we try to help with that. And I spend a lot of time getting patients to eat food again after they become so afraid that, well, I can't eat that. That's on the diet. You know, I ate that twice and I didn't feel well. So diet is an exciting, I love it, but it's also a risky area for some patients who are more anxious and maybe prone to disordered eating already. Mm-hmm. When we throw a diet at them, they can have a hard time. Do you also have to account for their access to certain food types, whether they live in food deserts, for instance, mm-hmm. or um, what their means are to be able to uh, account for certain dietary habits versus others? Yeah, so some of the diets, if you read them, they're just not feasible. You know, I'm in Chicago, so food deserts are definitely a thing. And we can't ask patients with, you know, lower incomes to implement, you know, diets that require foods that they just don't have access to. So you can't get healthy, fresh fruits and vegetables everywhere in Chicago. You have to travel 10 miles sometimes to get access to that. And, you know, if it costs five times as much as the cheeseburger or, you know, the fast food, it's really hard to convince patients. So we try to, um, you know, look at sources of, you know, B-grade produce and, you know, you have to go to Whole Foods and get the organic stuff. But, like, so we will sit with patients in sessions and say, where can you implement 80% of this diet? Maybe you can't do 100%, but let's see if you can get even, you know, halfway there. And what do you feel comfortable with? And so I think an all-or-nothing approach to diet isn't probably a good idea for most people. And allowing flexibility is what we try to um, instill in patients, you know, versus like hardcore rigidity because that's when people get in trouble. Well, Dr. Taft, we could design a year-long uh, elective for each of the quality of life factors that we are trying to just touch upon today from fatigue to pain to nutritional and diet uh, considerations. But before we go, any additional pieces of advice that you want to impart to clinicians um, to help them consider these quality of life factors for IBD patients and maybe take positive steps forward in their care? I think, you know, at Northwestern, I know the doctors have shorter, you know, you have maybe 15, 30 minutes with your patient. I think that's kind of the norm. And so we as psychologists know and appreciate that clinicians don't have a lot of time, and you guys have a lot of stuff to talk about. But please don't shy away from the questions about fatigue and how are you eating, how are you sleeping, how, how are you doing, how are you coping. Um, patients will appreciate that, and if you ask regularly, they'll open up to you, they'll feel more comfortable Versus waiting until it's like a crisis. So we often get people referred to us once they've cried in their gastroenterologist's office versus if that question was being brought up regularly and it felt like a a normal conversation with their gastroenterologist or nurse practitioner or what have you, it might not get to that crisis point. So we want early intervention. So ask. Don't be afraid. 
you know, to talk about these topics, weave them into your talks about treatment, you know, or, or whatever you can do to make it kind of flow naturally as part of, this is just part of your care. Um, I think we'll kind of, you know, normalize these topics and, you know, get them the, the attention that they're not really getting on a regular basis. I very much want to thank Dr. Tiffany Taft from Northwestern University for joining us to talk about these various quality of life factors and the important role that psychogastroenterology is starting to play um, and has always played, but now is in a definitive uh, way starting to play in both research and treatment for these patients. Thanks so much, Dr. Taft. Thank you for having me. For ReachMD, I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz. Thanks again for listening. This program was brought to you in collaboration with the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation and the American Gastroenterological Association. If you missed any part of this discussion or to find others in this series, visit reachmd.com foundation, where you can be part of the knowledge.